You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Habakkuk. And uh, if any of you young unmarrieds have your eye on somebody in the congregation, take a look and see if they can get to the book of Habakkuk without going to the table of contents. And that might give you a good indication on whether or not to pursue that relationship. Habakkuk, a minor prophet right after Nahum, and uh, a lot of times I think that the minor prophets are books of the Bible that get um, maybe not ignored, but certainly uh, less attention than they deserve. Sometimes it's hard for us to kind of put the historical context there. We're, we're not quite sure what's going on in the world around them when they're, when they're writing these things, and so it's harder for us to glean uh, things from the text. But I think uh, the minor prophets are incredibly helpful to us. Uh, they're there, just as any other book in the Bible, to train us in righteousness, and so we have to pay attention to them. And, and in particular, the book of Habakkuk, I think, has some truths in it that are very, very relevant to all that we have endured as God's people living in the time that we're currently in. So uh, now that you have your Bible open to Habakkuk, let me just pray and uh, ask the Lord to be with us as we uh, open up His Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word And we pray that you would speak to us from it and train us from righteousness through it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and to apply the truth of your word to our lives. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that you would silence my lips from saying anything that's not true of you or true of your word. And I pray that you'd be glorified from this pulpit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to sort of pique your, your interest in this book before we delve into it, and I can, you can breathe a sigh of release, a relief in just a moment, uh, I'm not going to preach through the whole book of Habakkuk. Um, given how long your pastor's been working through Matthew, I imagine that uh, sitting through an entire book of the Bible might seem arduous to you. But uh, what I am going to do is I'm going to um, kind of summarize the book, and then I'm going to zoom in on a little bit in chapter 2, and that's what we'll do. But before I do, one of the things I just want to kind of pique your, your curiosity, pique your interest in why this book is so relevant. Um, for many of us, as we look around at the world around us, we look at the, the darkness that's there, we look at the wickedness, um, we have a tendency to do one of two things. See, uh, A lot of people, as you are trying to be faithful in the sphere that God's placed you in, if you're looking to share your faith, if you've ever tried to share your faith with a family or a family member or a loved one, uh, one of the greatest objections you'll get to sharing your faith is when people look at the, the evil in the world and they ask the question, how can God allow such suffering and evil to take place? In other words, if God is good, why can there be so, so much bad in the world? And there's, the Bible has great answers to that, and uh, we'll, we'll get to some of them today. But one of the things that I think too many Christians do in trying to answer that question is they either diminish God's sovereignty or they diminish God's goodness. Because the argument is, if, God, if, if all of this wickedness that's going on in the world around us, God either can stop it and doesn't, in which case he's not really as good as you think he is, or he can, can't stop it, or he wants to stop it, but can't, in which case he's no God. And so Christians, in answering this question poorly, I think, we either diminish God's sovereignty or his goodness. And that's one of the questions that Habakkuk is sort of plagued with. 
I'll just give you some, some context to the book here. Habakkuk is likely writing sometime around 600 BC. What's happened is that, um, for those of you who kind of know your Bible, um, just a quick reminder, for those of you who don't, I'll give you some context. Um, the kingdom of Israel really is two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, was all united under the kingship of David. But because of the sin of his son Solomon, multiplying wives and allowing those wives to erect idols to false gods, um, to Solomon's children, in the time of Solomon's children, because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom of Israel was divided between the north and the south. And what's going on in what has happened in the world that Habakkuk finds himself in is that the Assyrians have sort of risen to power. They're sort of the superpower of the day. And the Assyrian Empire has swept through the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed most of it and taken many people off into exile. And so when Habakkuk, he finds himself a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and what's happening is, is the Assyrians rule most of what was uh, um, northern uh, kingdom of Israel and much of the known world. But the other thing that's going on is there's this other powerful empire called the Babylonian Empire that's sort of rising to prominence and gaining power. And you have little Judah, kingdom of Judah, kind of caught in the middle, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. And uh, Jerusalem and Judah is actually a very strategic place because whoever controls that area could restrict a whole lot of the trade that would happen because of the geography of the uh, location. And so you have little Judah there. And what Habakkuk is looking at is he's looking at wickedness in Judah now beginning to flourish in the same way that it was flourishing in the northern kingdom of Israel before the Assyrians destroyed it. So Habakkuk is looking and he's saying, look guys, if, if we don't stop the wickedness, if we don't turn back to God, if we don't repent, if we don't renew our covenant with God, then our fate will be just like that of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and will fall to the Assyrians as well. And so as Habakkuk is looking and at the wickedness of uh, Judah, he sort of opens, and you see the book, you can just kind of follow along. I'm not going to go through all of it, but um, it starts off the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. If any of you are following along in the King James, that word oracle is translated as burden. He sort of has this burden. He, he sees the wickedness in Judah, and he wants God to do something about it. In other words, he's looking around, you see this, it's in the first four verses there, is, is Habakkuk is complaining about the wickedness that's going on in Judah. Politicians are corrupt. The priesthood is compromised. The poor are being oppressed. Those who are in power are trampling. The orphans and the widows are being forgotten. The wickedness seems to be growing and the lawlessness seems to be growing and everybody has forgotten their God. Have you ever looked around at the world or watched the evening news and thought something similar to Habakkuk? It's easy for us sometimes to get caught up looking at the world around us and get caught up with how dark the world is and, and how seemingly oppressive it is and, and, and not having faith in where the trajectory of all of this stuff is going. It's easy for us to start looking around, look at some of the decisions politicians have made over the last couple of years, look at some of the decisions, look at the, some of the wicked men in positions of influence in our country, and start thinking, what's God doing? God, aren't you going to fix this mess? That's what Habakkuk is asking. 
The, uh, the structure sort of of the book is kind of interesting. Uh, for those of you who have studied scripture, you know that much of the Old Testament is written in what's called a chiasm. So um, it's, think of it like steps that go up, and in the, in the center of the chiasm is sort of the big idea of the book or the big idea of uh, that passage of scripture, and it kind of steps down in either direction. So we can work our way to a chiasm in this book, and we will in just a minute. But here's the outline. So in the first four verses of chapter 1, and like I said, you can just kind of follow along, take a look at it in your book, uh, in your Bible, and, and we'll zoom in. But Habakkuk complains to God about the wickedness, the corruption, and the evil in Judah. That's verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. And then God mercifully answers him. And the answer that God gives to Habakkuk's big question, his big question is, God, what are you doing about the wickedness in the culture? What are you doing about the wickedness in the world? Great question, right? And God answers him in verses 5 to 11. And God's answer is, I'm raising up the Babylonians, called the Chaldeans there, Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Babylonians to be an instrument of my judgment against Judah. So he answers him. God, what are you doing about the wickedness in Judah? I'm raising up the Chaldeans to be an instrument of my judgment. Whoa, wait, hold on a sec, Habakkuk says. I'm paraphrasing. But Habakkuk says, why would you raise up the Chaldeans to judge us? They're worse than we are. So in verses 12 uh, to the end of, of uh, verse one, or chapter 1, so from uh, chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk complains again, this time about why God would use evil men, more evil than Judah, he says, to bring about his judgment. Has it, anybody ever been there before? God, do something. And then God does something. Not that way, God. Do it my way. <laughs> you need some pointers on how to answer my prayers? So Habakkuk prays, do something. God tells him exactly what he's going to do. Habakkuk doesn't like the answer that he gets. So then, in chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, God answers him again by assuring Habakkuk that he has already determined a plan to judge Babylon as well in due time. Just to get through the rest of the book here, the next... Uh, or the next kind of um, section consists of a series of woes pronounced against Babylon. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, the plunderer will be plundered. In, uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, the proud conqueror will be shamed. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, uh, the, building of the, bu- uh, the buildings of the builder will be burned. In uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the one who forces someone to drink will be forced to drink their own shame. And then in chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, the silent idol will remain silent before God. And then chapter 3 is really, and I would encourage you to read chapter 3 at some point this week. We won't get to it all, but in chapter 3, you sort of have this um, conclusion to the book where Habakkuk poetically declares his trust in God's sovereignty and in God's purposes. But what I want you to kind of see here is that God in answering Habakkuk's question about how can God, in your goodness and in your sovereignty, how can you be allowing this wickedness to flourish? How can you allow all this darkness to be um, just running around rampant, God? God's answer to that question is essentially, I'm God, you're not, and I have a plan. See, what he says, and I just want to pull in some other things that a good student of the word knows when they read this in context. When God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to bring judgment, 
we might remember that in 586, the Babylonians do in fact come and conquer the southern tribe of Judah. They take uh, many uh, of the Jews there, lose their lives, and many others are taken off into exile. And we get the book of Daniel, right, where the Jews are in exile. And in the book of Daniel, we get all kinds of interesting things. So Habakkuk says to God, how can you allow this wickedness to flourish? And he says, I'm not going to allow the wickedness in Judah to flourish. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians. Well, how can you use them? They're wicked. God says, yes, I know they're wicked, and I actually already have a plan to bring judgment on the Babylonians. And, and Habakkuk could have kept going. This could have been like a Russian doll situation. He could have said, well, well, whoever you're going to bring in to judge the Babylonians is probably also wicked. Yep, and I have a plan to bring their end as well. And if we fast forward to the book of Daniel, I'll just give you a really quick snapshot. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has that dream. You remember of the, of the statue with the four sections? And, and there we see that the, and we, we get this through other uh, Uh, prophecies of Daniel, that the head is Babylon, right? And then you have the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you have the Greek Empire, and then you have the Roman Empire. And the statue, as it gets lower, goes from the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, to the Romans. And as it's kind of working from heaven or from the sky to the earth, it says in the time of the fourth kingdom is when God will condescend, God will be incarnated and come, and the Messiah will set up his kingdom in the time of the fourth kingdom, right? And, and this is what's really interesting. So think about what God said to Habakkuk. I'm, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to judge Judah. And then he says, and I'm already working on a plan to judge the Chaldeans. Well, historically, we know that it was the Medo-Persian Empire that brought a ruin to Babylon. And in um, Isaiah 46, God actually names Cyrus, who's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, under whose hand God judged Babylon. And Isaiah 46 was written about 150 years before Cyrus was even born, and yet God names him by name and says, you will be my instrument of of justice. So in other words, what God is trying to reassure Habakkuk with is I am in sovereign control of history. Don't worry about all of the difficulty that you see in the world around you because I am in sovereign control of history. And I want to zoom in on what I think is sort of the, the, the crux of what God tells Habakkuk. In verse 2, I'll read verses 2 to 4. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, it's interesting. When you take that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by his faith, um, that's actually a phrase that in the book of Romans, Paul takes that phrase from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, and the book of Romans is really his exposition on that verse. In Romans chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's God's uh, power unto salvation. And he goes on to say, For the righteous shall live by faith. And then the very next verse is, For 
the wrath of God is poured out on all mankind, and he goes on. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's expositing this verse, the righteous shall live by faith. The entire book of Romans is 16 chapters of Paul telling you what that verse means. What does it look like for the righteous to live by faith? Here's 16 chapters, Paul says, of what that looks like. So what God is saying to Habakkuk is, the key to you not freaking out about all of the corruption and the evil and the darkness and the wickedness that you see in your day, the key to not freaking out about it, is this vision that I'm going to tell you. This big idea, and the sermon uh, title today is God's Big Idea, because I think what God comforts Habakkuk with is something that is, uh, is sort of summary to what we all need to understand about the sovereign God who controls history. What's the vision? Well, the very center of the chiasm of the book of Habakkuk, we read it in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the vision. That's the big idea. That's the end for which God created the world. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the vision that God is saying, write it on plain tablets. Make sure everybody can see it. If it seems like that vision, that idea, that, that end is slow, wait for it because it will come. That's what he says is the key to not freaking out in the time in which Habakkuk lives. Therefore, it's also the key for us not freaking out in the time that we live by trusting that God is in sovereign control of history and he is moving history in a direction. And the direction he is moving history is toward the end game of his glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this, this is God's vision for the entirety of the world. It's his big idea, if you will. His glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. His good creation totally saturated in the knowledge of his glory. And you might say that's a, that's a pretty bold statement for one phrase in the book of Habakkuk. I'm not quite sure what a chiasm is, Pastor, but can you back that up a little bit more? Well, interestingly, that phrase, that God, the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, is repeated in Numbers 14, 21, Psalm 72, 19, Isaiah 11, verse 9, and here in Habakkuk 2, 14. It's something that is sort of littered throughout Scripture. It's something that God has promised his people and a promise that he intends for his people to hold on to for quite a while. And it's interesting that I think um, the Bible is full of these sorts of summary statements, right? Jesus himself once reduced the entirety of the Old Testament law into love God and love neighbor, right? The Bible's full of these kinds of summaries. David summarizes all of his desires in Psalm 27 into two things, seeing the beauty of God and worshiping him in his temple. Uh, many of you be familiar with the verse Micah two, uh, 6 verse 8. Micah reduces all that God requires into seeking justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. So the Bible's full of these sort of reduced statements, these condensed statements, and I believe that Habakkuk makes a profound summary that we would do well to believe God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now what's really interesting is that I think not only does he give us that vision to hold on to, but he also gives us the means by which it comes about. So what's the vision? What's the end game? God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. How does that come about? Verse 4, the righteous living by faith. 
Now, before I, I uh, talk about that a little bit more, it's, it's important for us to make sure that we're not just using Christianese, right? What is God's glory? That's a good question. What is God's glory, and what does it mean for God's glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Well, glory and holiness are two halves of the same coin. When, when Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So he's holy, but the earth is filled with his glory. So what's the relationship between God's glory and God's holiness? God's holiness, the word itself means set apart. And so if something is set apart for the purposes of God, it's considered holy. Well, in relationship to God, holiness is all that separates him from the rest of creation. You could say that God's holiness is his godness. It's all of the stuff that makes him God. And so all of the divine attributes, his wisdom, his knowledge, his, his power, all of those things that make him God, that separates him from the rest of his creation, that's his holiness. But when his holiness, that is his godness, is on display, the Bible calls that glory. So God's glory is his revealed holiness, and God's holiness is his concealed glory. So all the things that make God God put on display for everyone to see, the Bible calls that glory. That's what will saturate the earth. That's what will cover the earth as much as the water is wet. I think it's interesting for us to note that. And so if God's big idea is that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the means by which God brings that about is the righteous living by faith, there's an honest question that we should all ask ourselves. Is it hard to believe that that's God's end game when we look at the world around us? I mean, in all honesty, if, if God's end game, if the thing that he's saying, don't worry about what's going on around you so much, but just focus on my vision that one day God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as you look, as you watch the news, as you interact with your neighbors, as you see the, the curriculums in public schools, as you see all this stuff, is it hard to believe that that's God's end game? That that's something that history is working towards? In the last two years, we've seen lockdowns that not only caused depression and anxiety and domestic abuse, drug overdose, pornography addiction, and a host of other issues to skyrocket, but we saw the doors to churches closed and those affected could not get the help that they needed. Government overreach and corruption were sailing to new heights. Small businesses were destroyed. Livelihoods were taken. Critical race theory infected every area of social, educational, and political life. Vaccine mandates take away freedom over invasive medical procedures. Gender fluidity and pedophilia have become, become more and more normalized. Freedom of speech and religion is getting censored and subject to the oversight of morally corrupt watchdogs. And while all that was happening, the vast majority of churches did nothing. So I ask again, is it hard to believe when God promises that one day his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? when that's the world that we look at when we look around. So what do we do? As, as, as a church that was trying to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, what do we do? How do we live in this world with all of this, this darkness and this wickedness going on while still trying to hold on to that picture, that promise, that one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? What do we do in the meantime? How many Christians pray to be raptured 
Many Christians decide to move off the grid and segregate from society or to build a bunker and stock it with food and guns. That's tempting some days. But we live in crazy times, and what should we do when the excrement that dwells deep within the hearts of the pagan world hits the fan and showers the world? What do we do? And what do we do when most evangelicals look at that excrementatious mess and begin to make excuses for it, or compromise with it, or even admire it? Well, we believe in God's big idea. We live by faith, trusting that his vision will not delay, that it hastens to the end, that one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and we live by faith toward that end. I have kind of three points of of implications of the text that I think help us fill that space, that help us live like people living by faith in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart while still holding on to the promise and seeing in our mind's eye the future that God promises, that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The first implication is this. All hardship is handcrafted by a sovereign God who uses it to bring about his purposes. Let me just say that one more time. All hardship is handcrafted by a sovereign God who uses it to bring about his purposes. I think there's actually a really great application or a really great analogy or, or uh, something, a picture of this for churches like ours. As hard and difficult as the last two years have been, look at the blessing that it's been to your church, to what it's done to the community here, knitting you together with cords of love, creating community here that was necessary to weather that storm. The 13 baptisms last Sunday, praise God. The amount of baptisms that have come out of this community simply because people might walk in the doors looking to fight for freedom, but they find Jesus, right? And so we can look and we can look at, at and, and we could say like Joseph said in, in uh, um, Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? So we can look and we can say this difficult season, this, this, this time of hardship was used by God to do something, to mold and shape this community into the community that it is. Sometimes though, believing that is a little bit harder when we don't see the benefits, Right? Sometimes that's harder when it becomes an individual thing as well. I don't know what each and every one of you are going through, but all of you are experiencing some kind of hardship. I know that there are a lot of families that are divided right now. Families that through the pandemic, through COVID, through vaccine mandates, through political ideologies are divided. Won't sit down at dinner tables together anymore. I'm sure that breaks some of your hearts. Some of you have wayward children. Some of you have had a bad diagnosis. You're sick. And apart from the intervention of the great physician, things might not go so well. I, uh, I had a mentor who trained me in ministry, and uh, he got sick near the end of my uh, apprenticeship. And um, it was interesting, the diagnosis, and he believed in God's power and God's sovereignty, and he knew that uh, God could have healed him. But it was interesting to me, he had uh, ministered at his church for 29 years at this point, and he uh, got a diagnosis that 
you know, barring some sort of intervention, um, some miraculous intervention, that he wouldn't survive. And, uh, and I remember him looking at me and, and uh, saying what a privilege it was that God would give him the opportunity to show his congregation how to die well. And what's interesting when you think about whether it's a bad diagnosis or, or losing a loved one, we are on display to the world around us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about, to some we smell like death and to others we smell like life. And what, what the point of that is, is that even when we walk through hardship and we walk through suffering, there is an opportunity for God's glory to be manifested and to spread through how Christians walk through hardship. When we view the hardship that God gives us, not as random cosmic accident, but as handcrafted suffering from a God who loves us, Walking through it with faith in God's goodness and God's sovereignty spreads his glory. And so whatever it is, whatever your cross to bear is, I want to encourage you with God's word that whatever hardship you're going through is not accidental, it is not coincidence, it is not outside of God's sovereign plan. Isaiah 46 says it this way, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Proverbs 19:21 Many are the plans of the man but the purpose but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Daniel 4:35 All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done. Ephesians 1:11 In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to uh, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Isaiah 45, 5-7, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that a people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Listen to this. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? For our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. What is it that Job, after all of his suffering, after all of his hardship, and after all of the wrestling and the conversations with God in the whirlwind, what is it that Job learns? Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things... And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever it is that you're suffering through, whatever hardship you are experiencing or have experienced, is not random and it's not outside of God's will. God is sovereign over all things and he uses trials and tribulations to mold and to shape you into the kinds of men and women that God needs in order for his glory to spread around the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
knowing that changes how you walk through hardship. You could ask the question, isn't God just sovereign over the big things? Abraham Kuyper once said that there isn't one square inch of the cosmos over which God does not declare mine. According to Jesus, God is sovereign over the number of hairs on your head, whether birds fall to the ground, and how and when a flower blooms. And even the Proverbs declare the meticulous sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over all things, and he has sovereignly decided for each person their allotment of joy and sorrow, and both will mold and shape us into the kinds of people who, living by faith, will bring about the knowledge of God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. The second kind of point, so if that's the first point uh, or implication, is that all hardship is handcrafted by a sovereign God who uses it to bring about his purposes. Number two is this. God's extraordinary promises come about through the very, very ordinary obedience and belief of his people. I'll say that again. God's extraordinary promises come about through the very ordinary obedience and belief of his people. One of the first things that God needed Habakkuk to understand was to believe his big idea. Believe, see it in your mind's eye, have faith that one day the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And here's part of the problem. It's hard enough, I'll say it this way, one of the reasons it's hard for Christians to grasp God's big promises like that is because we have trouble enough believing the things that we've already seen. And here's what I mean by that. God is in the business of always promising more than we have the ability to believe. That's why faith is a gift. But when we think about the church and the state of the church right now, within the church, what do we see with regard to the first chapters of Genesis? Unbelief. Within the church, what do we see when it comes to the assigned role relationships between men and women? Unbelief. Within the church, what do we see when it comes to the authority of Christ in the public square? Unbelief. If we can't believe what the Bible plainly teaches about the differences between men and women and the creation of the world in six days, then how can we possibly, possibly believe something that we're being called to see by faith like the end game of God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It starts with belief in what God has said, and through that, more faith is generated for what we have yet to see. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But the kind of belief we're looking for is belief all the way down. Belief that God's ways are better than our ways. Belief that not only did he create the world the way that his word tells us he did, but how God tells us to conduct our businesses is better than our own ideas. How God tells us to gather and what to do when we gather as a church community is better than our own ideas. How many children you have to how to educate those children all our beliefs should be brought about by belief in the Word of God. And only then, as we believe what he's already said, can we have faith in the things that we have yet to see. But by faith, 
we are to continue to live in obedience each and every day. And, and this is, the, the author of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, he says that all things are in subjection to Christ. Now, we don't yet see all things in subjection to Christ, but what we do see is Christ. And the point of that is, is that because we have faith in what Christ has done, we can, with, uh, with eyes of faith, look ahead and with our mind's eye, see all things in subjection to Christ. That is, the knowledge of God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so with that faith of seeing what we don't yet see, by faith we fight against the lies of culture and we expect them to be thrown down. By faith, we fight the evils of abortion and believe it can be eradicated in our lifetime. By faith, we shine gospel light into the homes in our neighborhood, believing God will save the atheists, Muslims, Sikhs, and Catholics who live there. By faith, we expose the lies of our political leaders. We pray for them, and by faith, we see a day when all earthly kings bow the knee to King Jesus as the Psalms foresee. By faith, we callous our knees, praying for the salvation of our brothers and our sisters and our sons and our daughters, our fathers and our mothers and our husbands and our wives, believing in the God who raises the dead to life. By faith, we see beyond the years that we have left, a hundred years into the future, and believe that by the efforts of a small faithful church like yours, there can be deep gospel roots that go out from here and provides life to southwestern Ontario. By faith, we believe that the knowledge of God's glory will one day cover southwestern Ontario as the waters cover the sea. Last thing I want to say is, is sort of this last point here, is the potency and the significance of your life is rooted in whether your story is connected to God's story. Okay, I want to say this one more time. The potency and significance of your life is rooted in whether your story is connected to God's story. There's a, 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 a song, it's not a Johnny Cash song, but he did it better, um, called Dirt, right? And in it, he, talk, he sings about his empire of dirt and all that he had accomplished in his life. And at the end of his life, he's sort of reflecting on everything that he had built, this empire of dirt, he calls it. And that, essentially, he's looking back on it and saying, what have I really accomplished? There's a, um, there's a movie, um, it's called About Schmidt, and there's one of the most depressing lines in any movie ever made. He says, when you die and the people that you knew die, it'll be as if you never existed. Right? On that happy note, amen, you guys can head off. <laughs> just, just kidding. It's depressing, right? But the point there is that if you spend your life building your kingdom, build, telling your story, then when you die and the people who knew you die, it'll be as if you never existed. But the significance of your life has to do with whether or not your life is telling the story of God or your own story. And, and, and before you get really pious on me here, the, the, the desire for significance is not a bad thing. Right? In, in Mark chapter 9, if you ever just want to feel really good about your own um, level of sanctification, you can go and read Mark 9, where the, the apostles of Jesus, who had three-year one-on-one mentoring with the Lord Jesus Christ, were following the most humble man to ever walk the planet, 
were engaged in an open debate among them about who was the greatest. So if you ever just want a, a little bit of, you know, sanctification, sometimes two steps forward, one step back, you know. So if you ever just need, just go and read that story. And what's interesting, though, is that Jesus, in, in Mark 10, he kind of turns around and he, and he says to them, he doesn't chastise them for their desire to be great. Do you remember this? It's right after, actually, um, one of the most cosmically embarrassing moments in the world, in world history. This is when James and John allow their mother to go before the Lord Jesus Christ and ask that they would each have prominent places to sit in his kingdom, one on his right and one on his left. You imagine, like, in eternity, I'm sure there's all kinds of conversations you want to have. You want to ask Paul some questions. You want to spend some time with some of the apostles. I just want to, I just want to see what James says, like the wince factor. Like, so you, so you sent your mommy to go and ask Jesus <laughs> and sit beside him. It's... But notice, Jesus doesn't actually chastise their desire for greatness. What he says is those who desire to be great do it differently in my kingdom. He says the Gentiles lord it over those who are underneath them, right? They use their status and their power and their privilege, right, to lord it over others. He says, but whoever wants to be great in my kingdom, whoever wants to be first needs to be last. Whoever wants to be the greatest has to be the servant of all. So he's not chastising them for their desire for significance or their desire for greatness. He's just saying the way in which you achieve greatness in my upside-down kingdom is an inversion of the way the world sees greatness. It's through service, through worship, through obedience. That's what he says. And so, for those of us who want our lives to work towards the end game of God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, it's not bad for us to want to live significant lives— but the life that we're called to live is one of everyday obedience. I want to connect this really quickly to a big theme throughout Scripture. If this really is, if, if the end game, if, if, God, if where God is taking history is the knowledge of his glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, this has got to be more than just littered through a couple of passages that I, that I shared with you in Numbers and in Isaiah and in Psalms. Think back to the garden. And God creates the world. A lot of times Christians, we, we think that God kind of created the, the world and it was all good and wonderful like Eden. And then sin came in and messed everything up. That's true so far as it goes. But God didn't create an Edenic paradise that stretched across the globe. He actually, he created the world. It was without shape and void. And then he creates stuff on it. And so the world is, is, a, is a wilderness full of untamed wild animals and vegetation and, and rushing waterfalls and white rapids and all kinds of incredible things. And then God plants a garden in the east, he says. And he puts man, he puts Adam in the garden. Now that garden is beautiful and tranquil. And there's order in the garden because God planted the garden. But everything outside of the garden is still a howling wilderness, untamed wild. And what God tells Adam to do is to go and have dominion. He actually says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. That word dominion means to, to bring about its flourishing. So what, what Adam is literally called to do is to take the order and the beauty and the tranquility and the rule of God that exists in Eden 
and to spread it around the earth so that God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God knows that even with Adam's ridiculously long lifespan, he's going to need a lot of help, and so he gives him Eve, his helpmate, and he says, go be fruitful, multiply, and get a whole lot of laborers for this giant project and have dominion. Now, we might think that the fall messed all of that up, but it didn't because in Genesis chapter 9, that same cultural mandate, that same go and take dominion of the world is given to Noah. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take the order of Eden and go and tame the chaos outside of Eden. That's the mandate. I want you to think through that. Take the order, God's order, right? Rule according to God's law. Take the order of Eden and go and tame the chaos outside of Eden with it. The world is chaotic, full of darkness, full of wickedness, full of lawlessness. Our job as Christians is to take the order that God has laid out for us and to tame the chaos in the world around us with it. I uh, I have a five-year-old son named Judah, uh, who was struggling with making his bed, like many five-year-olds do. He was actually having overall just issues of cleanliness. But I was determined to make him make his bed. And so I sat him down one day, and uh, I was talking to him about making his bed, and little rascal that he is says, Dad, why do I need to make my bed when I'm just going to sleep in it tonight anyway? It's a great question, right? And, and you can only use because I said so, so often. But then I was struck with a moment of genius. I said, you know what, Judah? One of the reasons dad goes outside of the house to work is because God calls men to go and tame the chaos in the world around us. Wherever God has placed us, whatever sphere of influence he's put us in, Our job is to take the order and the godly rule of Eden and to tame the chaos with it. I said, one day, Judah, that's going to be your job, to go outside the walls of this this house and to tame the chaos wherever God has placed you. But right now, God has placed you in this room, and your authority is about this big. (laughs) So, Judah... Tame the chaos of your bed and take dominion of it because you are training to take dominion elsewhere. It was interesting because the next day, God gave me a wonderful opportunity. God gives husbands and and fathers a particular uh, route to sanctification. Uh, And and that route is that he, he gives them families full of wives and children who take much longer to get ready to get into the van when they have to go somewhere. And so I was, I was uh, cultivating patience and long-suffering in my van, waiting for, the, waiting for the family. And then my sanctification failed me, and I went inside, and I called up the stairs, Judah, what are you doing up there? Get down here. And Judah comes around the corner, big smile on his face, and he says, I was just taking dominion of my bed, Dad. <laughs> Fair enough. A humbling moment, but but I say that, you know, as, as funny as that story is, I think what it illustrates for us is the reminder that every single day, the, the, 
the, the mundanity of everyday obedience is training us and working towards something. If God promises that one day God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and the way we get there is through the everyday righteous living by faith, then moms, every diaper that you change is taking dominion where God has placed you. Taking responsibility for the workplace that God has placed you in. Taking responsibility as the gospel witness there in your community taking responsibility for the family in which God has placed you to be both a gospel witness, a discipler of your children, a leader of your wife, a respecter of your husband, a raiser of the children, whatever the case is, whatever God has put in front of you, whatever sphere that God has placed you in, your job is to be obedient and faithful in the spheres in which God has placed you, and then to trust in faith that God is using that everyday obedience to bring about his ends. And we don't know when or how those ends will come about. We don't have, we, we could be a long time away from it, or it could be imminent. The point is, is that God is moving history in a direction. And the direction he's heading, he's bringing history, is that the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our responsibility is to go into the spheres in which God has placed us, and to bring order and godly rule to the chaos that he places us in. And by Christians doing that, history is moving in one direction, and one day it will be true that the knowledge of God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So don't get caught up in all of the minute details of the wickedness in the world that you see. Like Habakkuk, put the vision in plain, make it visible, Remind yourself of it all the time. God is taking history somewhere. God wins this world, and my everyday obedience is contributing to it. Let's pray.